You guys ever heard the phrase, you had one job? You had one job. <laughs> this is, uh, is kind of one of my favorite things on the internet because I have like a perfectionist personality. I'm like a, on the Enneagram, I'm a one, which means I notice things that are out of place. And the, you can, you want to flip to that picture, Dave? There we go. This is like the classic, you had, you had one job. Your job was to, to paint the word school on the street, and, and you did, but it's, it's not right. Um, school is a hard word to spell, let's be honest, but it, that's your, if that's your one job, or you'll see things like, I mean, just type in you had one job on Google, and you'll just see these images of things like all these bricks that are one color and one of them is not. And you're just like, what? Who would do that? What kind of maniac would not put the right color in the right place? And, and again, I know that I may be more sensitive to this than, than other people, but, but it just seems like this person had one job and they found a way to mess it up. And, you know, it can be funny, but then you go like, like that Somebody had to redo that. Hopefully, they redid it. But, you know, it's, it's not just like, oh, sorry, I forgot to, you know, put my laundry in the laundry basket. It's like, that's, you know, there's real world consequences to this. Well, last week, we started this new sermon series in the book of Acts. And, and what we saw as we started that, that in the book of Acts, we see the story of what happens with a small group of people who were, who were followers of this man named Jesus. So, so the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the story of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of this man. And then the book of Acts is kind of like a sequel uh, of, of what happens after. It's describing the life and the mission of those followers, these people who become the early church who are our ancestors in the Christian faith, and they live out, walk out the commandment of Jesus to go into all the world and to make disciples. And, and so, in a sense, the book of Acts, especially as it starts out, is telling us today, as it has done throughout history, this, Christians, Church of Jesus, this is your one job. You have one job, and this is what it is. And, and I think that's kind of the appeal of this book, uh, the, the book of Acts. It has an appeal. It's, it draws us as Christians because it reminds us of the origin of the Christian faith, that it was really pretty simple. There was no conferences. There was no private jets. There was no golden thrones on the stage. There was no bumper stickers, right? There was just one job, one mission, and this small group of people who were utterly committed to fulfilling their one job, this mission that Jesus gave them, make disciples, make disciples, make followers of Jesus. So when we compare the, the church in the book of Acts to our experience of, of church the dynamic and the life of the church today, it can be easy to get discouraged or, or disillusioned 
and, and ask, like, where is that focus? Where is that, that commitment to this one job, this one mission? And you can say, we had one job, and, you know, if, if you could take a photo of, of how we are doing that job, we would probably become a meme on the Internet. We had one job, and, and in many ways, we are not doing it. When we began the series last week and kind of did an overview and introduction, uh, we saw that the book of Acts is, is more than history. It's more than just documenting historical events that took place, but it's, it's, it's a narrative and it's a story that we are a part of, something that we participate in. So, so if you are a Christian here today, if you're a follower of Jesus... Your mission and your calling, our mission and our calling, is the same as it was for the first original small group of Jesus' followers. We have been given the same commandment by Jesus to live on his mission and make disciples who know him, who love him, and who walk with him. And so we should come to this book and this time that we're going to spend in it with, with more than just curiosity, more than, more than just interest, more than like maybe we'll learn something. But we should come to it with, with a kind of, what we said last week, a desperate kind of hope that we could see God do something today that looks like what he did in the early church, that that we could live these dynamic, powerful, authentic Christian lives where we see a consistency in, in the things that we say we believe and actually see them coming to life in our everyday lives. We, we should have this hope that we would pray the kinds of prayers that only God could do that we couldn't actually accomplish them ourselves, but it, it could only be God who could accomplish them. We should have a desperate kind of hope that we could trade in living these solitary, lonely lives and, and to become part of a dynamic Christian community where we live, share life together and where there's actual concern and care, not just how are you doing fine, but something more, something that goes deeper, something that that actually requires love and sacrifice on behalf of others. And then we should have a desperate hope as we come to this book to see God do this mission through us, that we could see the gospel transforming people, people that we know, people that we care about, people that we work with, to see people in the community changed and transformed because of the message of Jesus, to continue what Jesus started. And that's, that's really what Acts is about. It's a continuation it's not about Jesus' ministry is done after the Gospels and then he goes to heaven and waits until he comes back. But it's really about the continuing work of Jesus through us, through his people, through the church. You can sum up all of Acts 
as this is about God's Son sending God's Spirit to work through God's people, the church, through us. So last week, we, we talked about this overview. We talked about the message and the ministry and the mission of the early church in Acts. And so today, we're going we're gonna to circle back a little bit. I didn't plan on doing this. Uh, I, had an, I have an outline of how we're going to go through this whole book, and I've, after the first week, it's already, it's already blown up, and that's fine. That's good. That's okay. Um, so, so we're going to double back and focus on that last component about the mission of, of the church. So we're going we're gonna to look back at verses 6 through 8 of Acts chapter 1, and we'll start with what is not our mission and then we'll finish by looking at what is our mission. So what's not our mission and what is our mission. That's, that's really the framework for today. So Acts chapter 1, we're going to read verses 6 through 8. If you're using one of the Bibles uh, from the table back there, it's on page 909. Acts chapter 1, beginning of verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, help us now as we come to your word. Would you show us what our mission is, what our one job is, and that when we we hear what you're saying, Jesus, that you're giving us a better mission than we've ever imagined, a better promise, a better purpose for our lives. Would you open our eyes, our hearts, give us understanding to see this, and and show us how how to walk this out, how to live it out as individuals and as a community. Give us grace now as we come to your word. And would you speak through me to your people so that you would be glorified and that we would be encouraged, that we would be corrected, that we would be set right, and we would ultimately see you and worship you, Jesus. Thank you for giving us your word that we can know you and walk with you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, the book of Acts... Uh, the author, Luke, he tells us at the beginning that there's this period of 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, right up to the time of his ascension, which is when Jesus returns to his Father in heaven. And in that, that intermediate time between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus lays out a vision for the future for his small group of followers. He says in verse 3 of Acts 1, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So it's clear that Jesus has a mission for the church. There's an expectation 
that, that he has something for them to do, something for them to participate in. This wasn't just like this three-year period of time where it was amazing and they learned a lot of stuff and then everything is going to kind of just go back to the way that it was. But he has an expectation that his ministry is going to continue through them. So, so all through Jesus' ministry, during his three years of ministry, and here at the beginning of Acts, Jesus called this new normal the kingdom of God. So, so the disciples get this. They, they are ready for what they think this is going to look like. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. Here is what we think he means. So, so you can hear their anticipation and their excitement in verse 6. When they're with Jesus, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So just listening to the way that Luke frames their question, the, the heart behind what they're asking, it's obvious to see that the disciples are looking for something specific, which is an immediate restoration of the nation of Israel in a physical sense, uh, that there would be a military and political kingdom that would drive out the Roman Empire and restore their sovereignty as a nation, that they would no longer be under the rule of another, but they would rule themselves. And so you could say, they are looking for, for God to make Israel great again. That's, that's their mindset. That's their, that's their hope. That, that when Jesus says, the kingdom of God, this is what comes to their mind. This is what pops into their head. And, and it's really important for us to understand that that's what they have in mind. So, so when they think, or when they hear the word or the phrase or the idea, kingdom of God, they are thinking about a restoration of something that they have already possessed, something that Israel as a nation has already had. They, they could have said, Jesus, when you talk about the kingdom of God, this is what we want. We want our nation to be like it was when David, King David was on the throne and we were at our pinnacle and when Israel experienced her greatest glory. That's when, when Jesus, when you say that you're going, that your kingdom is here, that's what we want. That's what we desire. So they envision seeing their people, their country, ethnically, geographically, returning to prominence once again within the world. And they, they want something that includes and benefits really themselves. But it comes at the exclusion of others, that they want to draw these borders and these boundaries and define them once again. Now... We can't be too hard on the disciples here. It's not like they're these power-hungry sociopaths who are like, we want to rule the world with an iron fist. We want 12 thrones, you know, and, and we... <laughs> but uh, they, they didn't come up with this idea on their own. It was really the prevailing theology. Like this is, you know... In the Old Testament, particularly like in the prophetic books like Isaiah and Ezekiel, there's, there's these visions and these prophecies about the, the kingdom of God and, and, and that 
Israel will rise to prominence again and that there will be this kind of, uh, that, th- that they'll be glorious as, as a nation and as a people. So that really drove uh, that, that once the Messiah came, this is what would happen. He would usher in this age where Israel ruled and, and had a kind of supremacy. So this is their category. When Jesus says, the kingdom of God, this is their expectation, and this is what they think Jesus is talking about when he says, the kingdom of God. So, so that's what they ask for. We want an immediate restoration of what we once had. So listen to the way Jesus answers their question. Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he says, but this is what you're going to do now. This is going to be your one job. It's not to rule over the kingdom of Israel, but it's to go into all the world and to be my witnesses when you have received the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, I'm sending you my spirit as as I have promised, not to establish a new earthly kingdom, not to defeat the Roman Empire, not to set up a new military and political structure within the city of Jerusalem, but I'm sending in my spirit to spread the good news of who I am and what I have done, to tell the story of my life and my death and my resurrection. And he says, you're going to go past these borders. You're going to go out into all the world to, to the Gentiles. You're going to take this message everywhere. That's your one job. That's your mission. The ministry that he's calling them to do, the future that he's laying out for them, the vision that he's giving them is a continuation of the ministry that Jesus has already done, right? Jesus comes, what does he do? He preaches the good news of the kingdom of God, and he does things that reflect the reality of that kingdom. He heals people, he sets people free from oppression, he recognizes and dignifies the image of God in people that are pushed to the margins of society, like lepers and women and all these other people that society has not recognized, he, he sees them and he notices them and he speaks to them and he dignifies them. So he, he speaks about the kingdom of God and he displays the kingdom of God through his actions and he says, this is your one job. This is what you have to do. And when we look back at the history of the church, you can, you can see a longing, a temptation that, that has been given into a lot to be recognized and to be admired and to be appreciated by, by everyone, right? We want, we want influence and we want power and, and we want it now a lot of times. And, and the church has often traded in their convictions in order to get that power, in order to get that admiration and that influence. 
But our mission is not to gain political power or cultural influence or acceptance or even to be appreciated for the good things that we do as we fulfill our mission. That is not our mission. That is not our calling. And we have to see the danger in anything that would pull us away from doing our mission. If that's not our mission, then what is? What is our mission? And really, it's, it's been said clearly already, the mission of the living church is to be witnesses for Jesus, not just in our own small world, but in all the world. And, and we need to see that what Jesus says in verse 8, when he says, you're going to be my witnesses in all the world, it is a paradigm shift for every person who hears him speaking. He is redefining their categories. This is not just a minor adjustment. It's blowing up everything they understand about the kingdom of God and redefining it. Saying, you thought this was what I wanted you to do, but it's actually something entirely different. It's something better. It's something bigger. It's something greater. Because really when the disciples are asking that question, they're, they're thinking too small. And again, I'm not putting the blame on them because they're within an existing structure and Jesus says it's something greater, it's something better because, because the kingdom of God transcends the cultural and geographic boundaries of Israel. This is a message that must go into every corner of creation. So, so as the church, our mission, our job is to declare the good news that Jesus came into the world, that he lived a perfect, righteous life, and that he died so that we could be saved from our sins, that he became our substitute, and that on the third day he rose from death. He conquered Satan, he conquered sin, he conquered death, and then he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning until he comes again to establish a new creation where everything that is wrong is made right. Our call, our job, our mission is to witness to that. It's to say, this is what's true this is what changes everything. And that message is so important that we can't be dissuaded. We can't be pulled away. We can't be distracted from it. So we'll finish by looking at five different aspects of, of that mission and, and what it looks like. And the first part to see is that, that there are people that are on this mission and that, and that it's the whole church. It's, it's the whole church. Who has this mission? The whole church does, and when we get to chapter 2 in a couple weeks, you see, we see that when the Holy Spirit comes, as Jesus promised, when the Holy Spirit falls, the Holy Spirit doesn't just fall on the 11 disciples who are left. It's actually 12, we'll see that next week, but um, 
the, the Holy Spirit falls on the entire body of believers, of disciples. It says that there's about 120 of them and that the Holy Spirit comes on all of them. The men, the women, the young, the old, whoever they are, the Holy Spirit falls on all of them. So every person who puts their faith in Jesus becomes a witness, becomes someone who joins in this mission. So there's no people on the bench. Everyone's on the field, right? You're not just waiting to, to learn enough or to, to be there long enough to, to go out there on the field. But, but when we put our faith in Jesus, we're on the field. We are participants. And we'll see this in Acts. There's certainly a place for leadership within the church, but but leadership in the church doesn't mean that everyone else sits around and, and waits to be told what to do. That there's a kind of participation and involvement that involves everyone, not just a select few. There's there's no little people in the kingdom of God. There's no unimportant people in the kingdom of God. We're all called to the same mission, to be witnesses for Jesus. So, so that's part of our identity when we become Christians. It's, it's, it really is more than a job. It's our identity. You are called into Jesus' family, and that means you become a missionary. You might not go to some far-off place, but, but you are a missionary, someone who is sent with the good news of Jesus everywhere that you go. So we have to ask when we consider that, who who am I witnessing to? And, and I don't mean like going up to their door and being like, have you ever considered what would happen to you if you died tonight? I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's a real question, but, but it is the idea of what, who is the person in my life or who are the people in my life that I'm actively, intentionally trying to help understand who Jesus is and what he's done through the words that I speak to them and the life that I live out in front of them. Who are those people in my life? Or have I segmented my life in such a way that for 80% of my time, no one could practically identify any association between me and Jesus? How are you fulfilling your mission as a participant in the mission of Jesus, the mission that he's given to all of us to be his people who are on mission, his church. What will fulfilling this mission look like? It is, it is difficult. The path of mission involves suffering. And Jesus prepared us, he prepared the church for this throughout his ministry, right? He said again and again repeatedly, to follow me is hard, to walk with me is difficult. It's a narrow path. And, and as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see this, right? There's incredible things that God does through the church. There's, there's victories. There's people meeting Jesus over and over again. The church is multiplying, but there's also suffering, there's also difficulty. There's people being put in prison. There's people being beat. There's people being killed because they are fulfilling the mission of Jesus. So the path of mission is 
a difficult one. There's going to be suffering. And, and it's interesting that, that the, the Greek word for witness in verse 8 is martis, which is where we get the word martyr in English. It didn't mean that at the time that it, that it was written. It really meant a witness, somebody who testifies to something. But it became synonymous with martyr, right? We, <laughs> to, to be a witness for Jesus became known as being a martyr, someone who suffered and even died to be a faithful witness. So to be, to fulfill this mission, to do this one job involves us suffering. Tony Marita, he says, the gospel never triumphs apart from some measure of sacrifice. Someone has to sacrifice and sometimes die so that others might live. And, and it's just helpful to remember, we follow Jesus, a man who died on a cross. And so we should not be surprised that we also would have to suffer in order to fulfill his calling his mission for us. How do we fulfill this mission? Where, where does the power for our mission come from? It's not just that we are witnesses who speak and testify. It's that we are witnesses who are filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit of God. So, so in order for the church to fulfill the mission that Jesus gave us, we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this in our own strength. You've got like 30 minutes of that maybe. Like have you ever tried intentionally to do the right thing? Like I'm really going to try hard not to, to be a jerk today. I mean it's just... It doesn't, right, like somebody cuts you off in traffic or somebody just runs out in front of you on Broadway. I mean, it just, and, and then you go, oh, I can't do it anymore. I'm a, I just yelled at them. Uh, and it's just, it's evidence that, that we cannot do this mission that Jesus has given us on our own. And, and this is the emphasis that Jesus gives here. Wait. Don't try to do this until the Holy Spirit comes. He tells him to wait. Our, our tendency is when we know we have a job to do, we want to jump right into it, right? We want to, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. But, but Jesus says in order to do this job, to fulfill this mission, you have to wait. You have to wait until the Holy Spirit comes on you. And we'll see this all the way through the book of Acts, that, that when the Holy Spirit comes, starting in, verse, in chapter 2, there's this incredible transformation that happens within these people. They go from being, you know, uneducated, simple, really people who don't know what's going on, and they are filled with this boldness and passion and power, and they're, they're put in these places of influence and authority. And, and they go toe-to-toe with, with the religious leaders, with the political leaders. And, and it says again and again that they do it because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. There is, I mean, I'll just go through a few evidences of this throughout Acts, but, but this is what happens when the Holy Spirit 
empowers and enables those people who are witnesses. Chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Chapter 5, verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Chapter 9, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Chapter 11, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Chapter 16, verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And that's just a small sampling of the way that the church begins to fulfill this mission that Jesus gave to them. Ordinary, uneducated, simple people filled with the Holy Spirit witnessing to who Jesus is and what he's done. And this is what happens. Multiplication, fruitfulness, many, many people, the gospel spreading, disciples being made because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have the same mission. And we have to know that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and able to, in order to do that mission. Now we're going to talk about in, in the weeks to come. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? That's a, that's a big subject. It's a big topic. But we'll get into it. But, but it's enough to know at this point. We, it is necessary to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Tony Marita, he says again. Uh, this, his description of this being filled with the Holy Spirit. The ordinary people of God, equipped with the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, dedicated to the son of God, can accomplish the mission of God. All right, what does this mission look like? Who are we sent to? What is the purpose of our mission? And as we've seen, the church, in, in Jesus' calling to them and his commandment to them, they are sent out beyond their borders, beyond what they were comfortable with, beyond what they were familiar with. They were called to go out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And, and as we go through the book of Acts, this is the framework of how they are sent out. Chapters 1 through 7 happens mostly in Jerusalem, and then 8 through 12 starts to expand out into these neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 through the rest of the book is really about the spread of the gospel out into the rest of the world, all the way to Rome at the end of the book. So in order to be faithful witnesses for Jesus, we have to reach beyond people that we are comfortable with, people that we're familiar with people that were people who are like us people who come to us ready to hear Jesus call to us is to go to them to go to people who are unlike us because there's no message like the message of the gospel there should be a sense of urgency that we have that says you can't wait for people to come to you. You have to go to them. 
it's also a sacrificial that we're bearing the sacrifice, not those people. One of the most difficult hurdles that we have as the church today is we're still waiting for people to meet all the conditions that we have in order for us to befriend them and share our lives with them. But Jesus says, go to people. You bear the sacrifice. You are the one who becomes uncomfortable. You're the one who goes to unfamiliar places. Don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them. That's my call. That's my mission for you. That we are compelled by the love of Jesus who came to us, right? He came into the world for us. That he became uncomfortable, that he became undignified and came to people who were unlike him because he loved us. And that's our call to go because the love of Jesus compels us. All right, we'll finish up with the the prize of mission, that we are ultimately a Jesus church. Uh, There's a a pastor, well-known pastor named John Piper, and he has this quote that's always stuck with me. He says that missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Doesn't. And I, I love that quote because it reminds us that, that the goal of the church is not the job. It's not, it's not just to be on mission. But the ultimate goal is for people to meet Jesus. It's for people to know who he is and what he's done for them. It's for people to love him. It's for people to worship him because he's worthy of worship. Jesus is the prize. And he's not just the prize that we're holding out to other people. He is our prize. He is our reward. So discipleship, sharing the good news of Jesus, is not a formula where we're We're making a factory and just pumping out more disciples who go and build a factory in some other place and pump out more disciples. Our call is to make disciples who find their joy and their delight in Jesus. Not just believe a list of things that are true, but are in love with Jesus, that that are captured by the story of Jesus, who he is and what he's accomplished on their behalf. And that means for us, as people who follow Jesus, that means that we have to find our delight and our joy in Jesus. And so probably for most of us, we feel like we're ineffective at this. I don't know how to share my faith. I don't know. I'm not even motivated to do so. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. Maybe what we need to do is not read a book on how to effectively witness, but it's to devote ourselves to Jesus, to delight ourselves in him, to rekindle our love for him. It is to have our hearts warmed 
so that we feel compelled, not through duty, but through joy, to take his message. It's to remember the good news for ourselves, not just so that we have our facts straight, but that our heart is in order. There's a a famous British author, you guys probably know him, some of you, C.S. Lewis, and he has this quote uh, that talks about having a bigger hope, a bigger vision. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I think that's true for us as individuals, but I also think it's true for us as the church, that we are far too easily pleased because we've often settled for cheap substitutes for the mission that Jesus has given to us, that that we'll settle for political power, we'll settle for cultural influence, we'll settle for busyness and prosperity and moralism. But when we settle for these things, we miss out on the better promise that, that Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit to live in us to empower us, to transform us, and to equip us to be on his mission. And that's better than anything. To be his people and to invite more people to know him and to love him, that that is the wildest mission. It's the wildest calling that you can imagine and we've turned it into something so boring but there's nothing better there's no greater task there's no higher calling and I guarantee you that there's people here today who are going my life feels insignificant it feels like it's There's no purpose, there's no narrative, there's no direction for it, whether you're a Christian or not. But hear what Jesus is calling us to. He's giving us a promise. This is what I'm giving to you, and this is is it. This is your life, to be my witnesses. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of belonging to you. Thank you for the faithful witnesses in our lives who shared the good news of Jesus with us and and were examples of, of people who were committed to you. Thank you that you've given us this calling to be that person for someone else. Maybe for many, many people. But none of us are excluded from that calling and that mission. And I pray that we'd be 
powerfully reminded of that today. That when we leave from here today, it's, it's really just the beginning of the week that you've given to us to be your witnesses when we're at work, when we're at home, when we're with our friends, when we're out and about. We are your witnesses. And that we would take that calling seriously. And that we would take it seriously as a church. That we wouldn't settle for just doing something here in town, but we would be absolutely committed to this mission to be sacrificial with our time and our money and our lives to see people meeting you and knowing you and loving you. Jesus, thank you that you didn't wait for us to come to you, but you came to us. Thank you for crossing the boundaries and the barriers of our sin and rescuing us and giving us this calling. Would we rest in you and in what you've done for us and that knowing that we are yours, we would go out on this mission with joy and with purpose and with commitment. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.